0: Good morning, Boker Tov to all. Thank you for joining us again for our weekly Parsha Perspectives for today. And this week we have the privilege of studying Parsha's Pinchas together. Thank you so much for being being with us. Just working out the technology here. Rabbis are now producers and directors. And technology IT experts in addition to everything else we're expected to do. I want to thank our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz who are sponsoring the Parsha series for the year again. can't thank them enough for their generosity and for their leadership and for their friendship. Uh, they're sponsoring in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, who was a very special man. I had the privilege of knowing him, someone who loved learning Torah, sharing his Torah thoughts, had a uh, insatiable thirst. For knowledge and for Torah and therefore it's a great privilege for me to be able to share Divrei Torah in his memory each and every week throughout this year. Thank you to the Becky and Avi and thank you to the OU for continuing to share and uh, continuing to uh, support this class as well. This week we have the privilege of learning Parshas Pinchas. It appears in the art scroll, Stone Chumash. If you have it in front of you, I hope you have a crows gedolos and you could follow inside. We've got a ton to cover today page 876, 876 in the art scroll, Stone Chumash. Again, you'll forgive me if I'm looking in multiple directions and trying to balance all of the, uh, all the different perspectives and technologies as once. Parshas Pinchas, Vayidabe Hashem HaMosheh Mor Pinchas ben Elazar ben Kohen, he shivis hamasim ya'a b'nei Yisrael b'kano'as kenasi b'socham, velochilisi as b'nei Yisrael b'kenasi. Hashem said to Moshe, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, here we give his lineage, we give his whole background. What is he, uh, submitting his shidduch resume? Pinchas is looking for a shidduch. He's got to give his whole background, where his siblings went to school, what their GPA, what, what medicines they're on. What is it telling us, everybody? Everything. Pinchas ben Alazar, ben Aaron ha and yeshiv What is he being rewarded for? Because he turned away Hashem's anger from the Jewish people. Me'al ben Yisrael, b'kano kenasi When he avenged God's vengeance among them, so Hashem says, I didn't destroy the Jewish people out of my anger. I was tempted to, I wanted to, but I withstood, I withheld, I held back from doing it. Why? In the merit of and because of the actions of, of Pinchas. What's going on over here? So Rashi tells us Pinchas bin Ashvatim or so the Shvatim would make fun of Pinchas. ben Avia Do you see where he comes from? Do you know his Yichas? His ancestors used to fatten the, the calves for Avodizara. They prepared the idolatry, they were pagans. So because on one side, perhaps he didn't have the most distinguished lineage, therefore the Torah comes out of its way to tell you, don't think that Pinchas was poisoned by his lineage. Don't think that in fact he uh, was an individual who inherited the quality, the character trait of idolatry, of paganism, and that's why he murdered a leader of the Jewish people? No! Look at Azad on the other side. You know who Azad on the other side is none other than Aaron Hakon. Rabbi Soloveitchik expands and he tells us what is the Posa coming to do to testify about his lineage? What do we know about Aaron? Aaron is Oev Varodev Shalom. Aaron is a person who loves peace. He loves peace, he pursues peace. The Rambam and his commentary on the parish of Mishnayis and others explain what was his methodology. How did he achieve that peace? Two people were in a fight. How appropriate now is we're going about to enter the three weeks, a time uh, defined by Machloka's divisiveness and conflict. And how did Aaron achieve peace? He went to both sides and he said, Do you know that the other really wants to make up with you, they want to reconcile, they just don't have the courage to come to you. And he went to the other side and said, do you know that the other really wants to make up, they really want to reconcile? Each side was under the impression the other side was willing to initiate, and through that strategy, through that methodology, Aaron was a lover of peace, he made peace all day long, he was peaceful, he was calm, cool, collect, sweet, kind, he was kind. So some might mistakenly think that Pinchas' actions were inconsistent. He was off the derech. His Zayda Aaron was a lover pursuer of peace. And this Pinchas is a zealot. The Kanoas Kenasi is a murderer and a zealot, and he's violent. No, to dispel this fallacy, to offset this misconception. The Torah specifically testifies and records Pinchas Ben Elazar, Ben Aaron HaKohen, goes all the way back to Aaron. You're not called to the Torah by your father and your grandfather's name. You don't fill in the Ksuba, your father and your grandfather's name. Why here do we have both Pinchas, Ben Elazar, Ben Aaron HaKohen? And says Rabbi Soloveitchik, to dispel that misconception, the mistaken notion that Pinchas was off the derach of Hizadeh. Hizadeh's derech was peace, a pursuer of peace, a lover of peace, and so was Pinchas. How is this peace driving a spear through two human beings simultaneously, an act of zealotry and violence, is in fact a being a pursuer of peace. That's inheriting the quality of the of Aaron. And the answer is yes. You know, sometimes those who are cruel to the kind, those who are kind to the cruel end up cruel to the kind. Sometimes to pursue peace you have to take drastic measures and take things into your own hands. It's not about being a pacifist. In fact, that's why he's rewarded ultimately with the bris shalom. The next Pasik tells us, Sinanino Saint Lobrisis Shalom. Krajbarhu tells Moshe, announce Lachaina Mor pronounce. That what? What's Pinchas' reward? It's very peculiar. The reward for an act of violence and zealousness is peace. I'm giving him the Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, which is no longer a distinguished prize. The Nobel Peace Prize goes to Pinchas. For what? A public act of murder. That doesn't seem to make sense. It seems somewhat ironic. After all, he demonstrated the heroism not of pacifist, but of a warrior. He takes on the Midianite king and a leader of a tribe. He zealously crushes a rebellion. It should qualify him as a general. He should win the... the, the uh, five stars in the army you should win a purple heart why is he winning a peace prize so rabbi salavitchik explains here in his beautiful Khumish, there are those who feel that pacifism is a cure for man's problems they argue if we would unilaterally announce arm cuts, we would be able to spare the world from disaster. They try to prove the immorality of war by championing the cause of pacifism. We know from history, for bitter example, the many tragic consequences have been arisen from the cause of pacifism. Who can tell how many Jewish lives would have been saved had the pacifists in England and America not delayed entry into the war against the Nazi butchers and aggressors? What is the philosophy of Torah towards the use of force? Certainly the goal, great goal is to establish a world dominated by patience, understanding, peace. To resolve to settle differences amicably. Some theologians turn to the Torah with accusation, quoting the Torah's statements about the seven nations of Canaan and the command not to spare anyone. These theologians overlooked the covenant of peace that Yehoshua offered each nation in turn and the requirement that in laying siege to their cities, we leave one side open so they could escape. There's a mitzvah that when you conquer the land of Israel, you have to eliminate the Canaanite nations. And some people quote that to say that we are barbaric, that we are animals, that the Jewish people are brutal. But the Rav correctly points out, doesn't need me to say correctly points out, that of course the prerequisite to driving them out of the land was to first offer them our hand in peace, to live together and to live side by side in the worship and the service of Hashem. And even if not, when you lay siege around them, you leave one side open for them to flee, for them to leave. For them to go. The total philosophy is clear. To gain anything precious you have to be willing to make sacrifices. A businessman to earn money must first invest capital he already has. For a person to be able to enjoy time with his family he must first give up from work and from making a living. For us to acquire peace we must be ready to fight for it, to relinquish peace on a temporary basis in order to keep it in the long term. In other words, ironically, somewhat paradoxically, you have to be willing to fight for peace. It sounds like an oxymoron. What do you mean you have to be willing to fight for peace? The answer is sometimes you have to be willing to compromise or sacrifice peace in the short term in order to achieve a real, authentic, and lasting peace in the long term. Neville Chamberlain of history made the tragic mistake of thinking peace could be achieved with those who denied the worth and importance of the individual. Peace cannot be attained by appeasement. A true peace lover has to be ready to take up arms and resort to their use if necessary to attain and protect the sacred institutions that these aggressors seek to destroy. Zimri's sin was to flaunt his immorality publicly. He indicated his contempt for Moshe and Hashem's authority. Pinchas rightly understood that Zimri represented a cancer, which if allowed to exist would mean the destruction of everything had been accomplished under Moshe's leadership. The fight for peace required giving up peace. Pinchas did not relish the role of using force. He wasn't eager to smite the sinner. He did it reluctantly, but with the conviction that only through his bold action could the Jewish people be saved. It's only those individuals who are prepared to fight for peace and risk their entire credibility for the sake of peace, who succeed in creating an inner unity. It is most appropriate that the covenant of peace should be their reward." So the notion of the peace prize being the the prize that Pinchas gets for a graphic and brutal and violent act is not ironic or paradoxical or inconsistent. In fact it is entirely and wholly both H O and W H O appropriate. He got the peace prize because sometimes in the name and in the pursuit and to achieve a real authentic and a lasting peace one has to at the side for a time set aside set aside peace. So the Torah itself testifies that Pinchas is not off the derech from Aaron's path of Oiv Shalom Rodev Shalom. He too is a lover of peace, but loving peace doesn't mean it's another religion that says turn the other cheek, look the other way, be forgiving at all costs. We don't let ourselves get slapped across the face. Rather, for the pursuit of peace, one has to be willing to stand up with courage and bravery, as Pinchas did. Sometimes an act of zealotry is, in fact, for the sake of peace. Now, if you look in the Chumash, if you look in the Torah, if you look even in the art scroll Chumash, in the stone Chumash depiction of our our Chumash, which tries to depict the actual text, the way it appears in the Torah scroll accurately, you'll notice... There is a small letter yud. By Daber Moshe Lemor Pinchas Ben Alazar Ben Aaron The yud in the name in the word Pinchas is a yud Katana. It's a small letter yud. Why is the letter yud there small? So sort of Zalman Tziratskin in his Sefer nine the Torah tells us something which I think is so important to know. Pinchas goes down as a hero of history. Talmud Yerushalmi, by the way, tells us that it was only it took time for him to be a hero even after the episode, and even after God rewards him with the Peace Prize, with the bris of Shalom, the Yerushalmi tells us, nevertheless, his contemporaries wanted to put him in cheirim, an act of zealotry. What happens to a society and a civilization? What happens to a community where people don't offer due process? It wasn't that Zimri and Kazbi were arrested and tried and then were put to death. When a person, a zealot, can simply rise up and drive a spear through two people, when a zealot can take the law into their own hands, it is a very slippery slope. It is a very dangerous prospect. And therefore the Yerushalmi tells us that his contemporaries, even after God gave him the bris shalom, nevertheless still wanted to put him a cherim until they were convinced otherwise. It's not so simple. So he goes down ultimately. Pinchas, we recall him as a hero. Anyone know who Pinchas' Gilgul is? The Zohar tells us that Pinchas comes back. The reincarnation of Pinchas is none other than another zealot. Not a violent zealot, sort of a peaceful zealot, but another zealot by the name of, drumroll please, Elijah the prophet. Eliyahu Hanavi is a zealot in his own right when he fights Nevi'e Baal. Even when he doubts the Jewish people with his zealousness and Hashem says, you're going to come back and you're going to attend every Bris, and You're going to be at every Pesach Seder and you're going to make Havdalah in every Jewish home. They're going to sing your name and you will witness the continuity and the courage of the Jewish people. Eliyahu becomes the symbol of optimism and hope and belief in a brighter future. We spoke all about this in Shabbos HaGadol this year, in the middle of, towards the beginning of, we wish it were the middle of, towards the beginning of, as it turns out to be, this uh, this pandemic. Who Eliyahu Anavi was? But Eliyahu was the Gilgal, the reincarnation, says the Zohar of Pinchas. Pinchas is a hero of history. He rose up with courage and bravery. Even when Moshe Rabbeinu froze, was debilitated, didn't know what to do. When Moshe halted and didn't know what to do, Pinchas rose up and took matters into his own hands. So one might think, Pinchas was a precocious young child. Pinchas was a prodigy. One might think Pinchas from a young age already displayed these leadership qualities. Maybe Pinchas already was on the track and the trajectory towards greatness. Says Rav Zalman Tziratskin in the Torah, that's why we have a small Yud. The small Yud tells us that until this moment when Pinchas distinguished himself, he was an ordinary member of Klal Yisrael. He was ordinary. There was a mageifa, there was a plague. There was a plague we didn't even get into. We're already out of time and we're just starting. But the end of last week's parsha. what happens? Balak recruits Bilam to curse the Jewish people, but it doesn't work. Those who try to recruit us, uh, try to curse us, it doesn't work. Hashem transformed it to a blessing. Already in the beginning of Breshas, Hashem says, whoever blesses this people will be blessed, and whoever curses it will be cursed. And while the Jewish people, for the most part, struggle to believe it, evangelicals and non-Jews are the ones who take it seriously and believe it from their heart. Who was the football player? Some NFL player who offered words recently to a Jewish, I think to a Jewish high school graduation, quoted and invoked this Pasuk. Those who bless the Jewish people will be blessed and those who curse it will be cursed. And and that was the failure of Bilaam and Balak, that that strategy and scheme would never work. So what did they do instead? What did they resort to, which tragically always works? Instead they, through, they seduced us uh, and provoked us with beautiful women. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik says at the end of last week's parsha, he says, what happens? Ishmi b'nei Yisrael an Israelite man came and he brought this Midianite woman before the eyes of Moshe. Bilam understood a fundamental principle regarding the Jewish people and he gave advice to Balak as to how to defeat them. And what is it? The Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us, vav, that the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people, hates immorality, hates promiscuity, licentiousness, lewdness. This incident is the one and only instance in which Moshe becomes despondent. He who fearlessly defended the people after the Chayta Egel, right? The Gemara and Rosh Hashanah depicts that Moshe as if grabbed Hashem by his lapels. He grabbed him by the coat jacket and said, Rebo you must, he demanded brazenly, boldly, you must forgive the people. And after the sin of the spies, Moshe stands up and steps out and he says, Hashem, you must forgive this incorrigible people. And after the incident of Korach, he weeps. At Shittim, the brave and tenacious master of all prophets, loses his resolve. Bilam was about to win his battle against the Jewish people and Moshe's adversary was on the verge of despair. Why? Said the Rav, because without the sanctity of the family, Knessus Israel can no longer exist. Bilam understood. I can't get them with my words. I can't get them with my prayers or my wishes. You can't curse the people, the Jewish people, and persevere and triumph, so how do you bring them down? By introducing immorality and promiscuity. Because when the fabric of a Jewish home is compromised, when there's a chink in our holy armor, because we've introduced images and ideas and behaviors and attitudes of promiscuity and licentiousness and immorality, when we become confused in how we define holy institutions, that is when the Jewish people are compromised, that is when we are most threatened, that's when we are in our greatest, that's when we are in our greatest danger. So what happened? They threw beautiful women, Moavi women at us who came to seduce us and distract us and tempt us. And we failed, not just Cosby and Zimri, but there was a more collective and a broader sense of failure. Someone here on YouTube is asking if they could ask questions. Absolutely. We ask quite love questions in the chat, on Zoom, on YouTube, on Facebook, everywhere we're broadcasting it, though it's hard to see it and read it all at once. But if you can, please do. So God visits a mageifa, a plague a virus, a pandemic upon the people. And how does it end? Pinchas is the one who rises and ends it. So says Rav Zahamot Tzaretz torah back to his text, He was the one who stopped it. He was an ordinary person. He was just one member of the tribe. But it was this act of heroism, of bravery, of courage. It was the clarity of vision to be able to distinguish between immorality and morality to be able to call out what was unethical from what's ethical, to be able to purge promiscuity from our midst, that is what gave him a position of distinction and honor. It's what secured him as a hero for history. And therefore, it's a yud katana, it's a small yud to tell us that he wasn't destined for this greatness. It wasn't seen from his youth. It wasn't something that was projected about him. It was a yud katana. He was an ordinary, simple person. It was a small yud, and yet he took that within him and he took that moment and he rose to greatness and therefore goes down in history with greatness because he took advantage of the moment. He lived the moment and that is how he's recorded in, in history. Okay. kenasi kenasi the pasuk said, again page 876, still at the beginning of the parasha. B'kanoas kenasi, it's a very clumsy, it's a very awkward, it's a very difficult, uh, a difficult pasuk. He's rewarded with the Peace Pies. Why? Because he avenged God's vengeance. And where did he do it? B'Socham. Which is peculiar. Why does the Torah have to say B'Socham? What does the word socham among them add? Again, to translate the Pasuk. Pinchas, the son of Elaz, the son of Aaron has turned my anger away from the children of Israel by his zealously avenging me among them so that I did not destroy the children of Israel because of my zeal. socham. What is that word B'Socham? Among them, does it actually add, does it actually add, I'm trying to see the chat, does it actually add anything at all? What is the word B'Socham among them add? So there are a few approaches I want to share with you to this question, which we derive timeless lessons for today, which is the theme of our parsha. The first comes from, the first comes from Rav Yitzchak Varka. Rav Yitzhak Varka says the following, what does the word bisocham add? He says, What happens? A person has a heroic moment. They rise to the challenge of history. And in that moment they secure their distinction forever. What is the natural temptation? For it to inflate your ego? For a person to become arrogant? For a person to become arrogant is the natural uh, is the natural reaction. Do you know who I am? Everyone else froze! The great Moshe Rabbeinu froze! But I, I rose for the moment. I'm the one who acted. So one would have thought maybe it went to Pinchas's head. Maybe it went to Pinchas's head and maybe he became arrogant. That's what the Pasuk telling us. But Pinchas remained b'socham. He was part of the Amcha. He remained among Klal Yisrael. Even though it's true he acted heroically, he rose to the moment, but he never forgot where he came from. He never saw himself as superior or greater or better than anyone else. And that's what the Pasuk is telling us and testifying to us. He remained humble and modest. He wasn't an Adam Godol. He didn't see himself as better than anyone else. He remained among them. The the great revel Melech of Lezinsk. We led a trip to Poland several summers ago. We had a great tish. Those who remember, I see some people on this who are with us in the great tish that we had in Lezinsk at the kever at the tzion at the at the grave of the of the Rebbe Rebeli Melech, the great Rebeli Melech of Lezinsk. So he says the following: You know what it means, bisocham. Says the Rebbe Rebelli Melech, B'Socham means this attribute, this quality, this capacity for courage and bravery that when we look around and everyone else is frozen and doesn't know what to do, to step up and to stand out, to take the matter into our own hand, to defend, to defend the honor of Hashem, B'Socham, he implanted it within each and every one of us. Pinchas put that in our DNA. He implanted that in our system. He gave us that capacity for Mesir's nefesh, that willingness. Nechazah tell us that Pinchas was willing to die. Says that Pinchas was willing to give his life to avenge God's honor in that moment. He was willing to be Moser nefesh of the highest order. I don't mean Moser Nefesh to pay the high tuition, which is Mesir's Nefesh. I don't mean Moser Nefesh that he couldn't get the meat because he ran out of meat at a cheap price. I don't mean Moser Nefesh that the restaurants were closed. I mean he was willing to be Moser literally his Nefesh. He was willing to give his life all together to defend the honor of Kalah Yisrael. And says the Rebbe Rabbi that's what it means, B'socham. He implanted this comment, This he implanted this um, this attribute, this capacity, B'socham, within us, and we too can realize that among ourselves, as I state, the Rebbe, Rebbe Melach. I want to share with you a couple other opinions. Back to the Sefer Eish Tamid, beautiful Sefer by Rav Yisroel Druck, great Rosh in Yerushalayim. Each week I've been taking a few insights from his beautiful Sefer, and here he has an essay on this topic. Asked this question: What do you mean What What is the word besocham add? So so far we've seen Rav Yisroel Vorka. And we've seen the Rebbe Rebeli Melech. But he goes back to the Rishon, and we go back to the medieval commentaries, Ravavadio Sforno. Rabavadya Sforno, the great Italian exegete, says the following. The Sforno writes, quote, he Says can't you know where he avenged God's honor? Do you know where he wiped out? Kasbi and Zimri specifically, he did it bis soham He did it intentionally and specifically and by design publicly. Why? Because the fact that the people would see someone so publicly stepping up and standing out and having the courage to avenge his blood would be an atonement. It would be a repair for their indifference, for their apathy, for their willingness to have allowed that promiscuity in public. You see, the for the plague, was visited upon them, not because every one of them engaged in the very act, but because even those who didn't engage in the act were indifferent from it. And so the Tzvarno says the word bis is used intentionally. And the word bis is used by design because what set back the magefa, what repaired the damage of the plague, was the Kiddush Hashem created publicly to offset, to negate, to undo Echel Hashem, the desecration of Hashem's name, it can only be undone with a great act of Kiddush Hashem. And therefore, Bissocham, when Pinchas took matters into his own hands, he did it specifically where Bissocham in a public way, in a public place, so others can see. Which reminds me, I'll share with you um, a little bit more, expanding on this theme from the Svorno that Rav Druk quotes from an old drush I once gave. The reward for Pinchas, the Nobel Peace Prize, The most difficult thing to understand in the story is the reason. Because if you keep going in the Pesach, what does it say? Because he avenged my, he avenged my Heishebes Hamasi. He took back my anger against the people. Didn't Pinchas deserve the reward even if the people continued to be punished? The reward was because it turned back God's anger? That's not why he was rewarded. Wasn't he rewarded because he stopped Kazbi and Zimri from doing what they were doing? Isn't he rewarded because he made a Kiddush Hashem? Isn't he rewarded because he stood up for God's honor, for that which is correct? What do you mean the reward is Hei Shives Hamasi? Because he turned back the anger. Why are the two intertwined? So I'll tell you an amazing story. I've shared this before, but it's worth repeating. Maybe some of you aren't familiar with the story. Do you know how 9-11 began? Not the date on the calendar that we associate with the tragedy of the of the World Trade Center, but 9 one In a case of an emergency, people are meant to dial 911. Every one of us think that. God forbid, if there were an emergency, you dial 911. When did that start and where did it come from? So some of you may remember the story. It was before I was born. On a cold winter night, March 16th, 1964, 2.40 a.m., 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was attacked with a knife a block from her apartment and died in her stairwell. The New York Times coverage of her murder stated the police recorded, the police record showed that 38 people admitted to hearing her cries for help. In her building, out their windows, 38 people, 38 separate people, had admitted to hearing her cries for help, and not a single witness called to report the incident. Now, dozens of books have been written about her death and the lack of empathy and action that were taken, but now more than 50 years later, a new documentary called The Witness actually dives into the tragic story and reveals that the Times exaggerated that number, and it's unclear exactly what the background was. So there weren't 38 eyewitnesses, but there were maybe only a handful, but there were those who witnessed this murderer who ultimately died in prison a couple years ago, who attacked and killed Kitty Genovese. At least two neighbors claimed to have called the police, and uh, one neighbor in fact ran to help Kitty and held her as she died. Whatever the exact number is doesn't really matter. The bottom line is that people heard her being attacked, and for the most part, did absolutely nothing. Her tragic death led to several positive things, as I alluded to. One of them was the adoption of the 911 emergency call system. In 1964, it was adopted as a result of that incident. To make it easy for people and easy to remember, you dial 911. But it led to social scientists studying indifference and what leads to people who are passive and apathetic to that which is happening around them. And I'd like to suggest, although it turns out it's this Svarno really, I'm expanding on the Sepharno, that that is the story of Pinchas. The villains of the Pinchas story are not in fact Cosby and Zimri, or they are not the main villains of the story. The main villain of the story is indifference. That two people acted out in public and nobody challenged them on it. A nation stood by and watched. Perhaps they were stunned, but they were also silent. Nobody protested, nobody objected, nobody said anything. And when telling the story, the Torah emphasizes that where did it take place, Kazbi and Zimri and their great act of, of immorality? Where did it take place? kol It took place in front of everyone. They witnessed it, they saw it, and they did nothing about it. And the Jewish people are collectively punished, not for the act of one or even a few, but because of their own failure to act. They watched and observed and they didn't object. They tolerated the intolerable and they created an attitude of indifference in which evil could propagate, evil could thrive. Pinchas's act of of zealotry, when focused on Kazbi and Zimri, the two recipients of the spear, looks violent. It even looks barbaric or heinous. But from the perspective of a crowd of passive onlookers who were unable or were unwilling to act, Pinchas's stepping in was a brave act of heroism. His doing so was not graphic or barbaric. His doing so was an act of bravery to in fact restore peace. And that's why he's awarded the bris shalom, the peace prize because sometimes as we saw from the rav the path to peace is not through indifference and looking away the path to peace is through initiative and bold willingness to be intolerant of the intolerable pinchas is rewarded for relieving the people of their punishment it wasn't the the, the driver of his reward is not the kiddush hashem of stopping Kazbi and zimri what is the driver of the reward says the pasuk because he is hamasi because you stopped the anger that I was putting on them. I'll just end this, this insight with a quote from the great Nobel laureate, the late uh, Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel, who said, quote, Of course indifference can be tempting, more than that seductive. It's so much easier to look away from victims. It's so much easier to avoid such rude interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It is, after all, awkward, troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who's indifferent, his or her neighbor are of no consequence, and therefore their lives are meaningless. Their hidden or even invisible anguish is of no interest. Indifference reduces the other to an abstraction. In a way, to be indifferent to that suffering is what makes the human being inhuman. Indifference is more dangerous than anger and hatred. Elie Wiesel had witnessed the worst atrocities he what he sees and what he blames is indifference there will always be evil people and evil people who perpetrate evil but what a label enables them to either succeed or fail are the people around them will they be indifferent and apathetic to them or will they step up and make a difference is a question we have to ask in our lives in so many ways going on right now whether it's fighting for racial equality and justice and i don't mean the reactions that are pandering i mean our willingness not to be indifferent to some of the ingrained biases, whether it's stepping up about calling out anti-Semitism, even within some of those movements and anti-Semitism in general, what are we indifferent to and what do we tolerate that's intolerable and what does it say about us? Because it's not just the perpetrator's of the wrong. When we are indifferent or apathetic to it, we become accomplices to those wrongs for which we too become liable. And that I think is some of the story of Pinchas that doesn't get emphasized enough. So that is all based on the svarna. But Rav Druk continues and he quotes next the grizz, the brisker rav, Ravelvo vosalavechik. Who says that the Torah emphasizes that Pinchas did his act. Where? Specifically, among them, why? What was the license Pinchas had to act this way? By what right did Pinchas have to, in fact, take matters into his own hand? What was his license to, to act so zealously? So the Torah, te- the Talmud testifies, the Gemara tells us that is pogimbo, that the heter of kenos, of zealousness, is only if you do it p'farhesi, if only if you do it publicly. And therefore, the Torah had to testify, it was bisocham, to justify halachically the behavior and the act itself, that it took place bisocham. We see this in Parshas Emor as well, where Druk expands, when you see the whole source of the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. You know, we have a major mitzvah of Kedusha. We don't think of it as one of the Taryag, but it's a mitzvah. In fact, it's the way we recite Kedusha. Uh, uh, What's our response in Kiddusha? The Chazic gets up to and we declare, "Nikadesh ba'olam. What is our mission? Who are we? What are we meant to do? What is the difference we're made to make in the world? Nikadesh ba'olam. We are here in order to sanctify Hashem's name. Where? B'Socham, in ba'olam. And this is based on the Pesach in Parshish M where that says, V'nekdashdi b'soch b'nei Yisrael. Where does the Kiddush Hashem take place? B'soch b'nei Yisrael. You know, when I act privately and alone and I do something anonymously, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful, virtuous act. And it's wonderful and it should be celebrated and applauded, but it doesn't have the impact of Kiddush Hashem. In order to achieve Kiddush Hashem, V'nekdashdi where? B'Soch B'nei Yisrael. We declare in kedusha, Nekadei where? Ba'olam, in the world. And therefore, this Kiddush Hashem too says, the Grizz took place where? B'Socham, among them. And it is specifically described as taking place where? It's specifically described as taking place among them. Among them. Um, okay. There's more interpretations on this, but we will be out of time, and I don't want to be out of time. I want to cover some other, some cover some other areas. Okay. Pasuk perchafe pasuk yud aleph. We we'll move on to perchafe pasuk yud aleph. We're still in the Artscroll Stone Chumash on page eight seventy six, and we're still on the second pasuk, making our way all the way. as brisi shalom. Sorry, let's go to pasuk yud dalad. Here the Torah now gives us the names. The Torah now identifies who these uh, villains were who carried out this and perpetrated this promiscuity in publicly. And what are their names? Zimri ben Salu, who is Nisi the Shimoni, and the Shem Zimri ben Salu, and the Shem Ha'ishah, the woman's name, who seduced him, the seductress, the Midjanite seductress is Kazbi Basur, Rosh Umoz Be'Av Midian who? Hu. So, why is it peculiar that the Torah gives us their identities here? Not because of Parshas Pinchas, but because of the end of Parshas Balak. At the end of the last week's Parsha, if you were paying attention, it tells us Ish Yisrael and Isha. There was a Jewish man and a woman. Very generic pronouns are offered, but not their names themselves. So which is it? Are we protecting their identity? Or are we revealing their identity? Why, at the end of Parshas Balak, do we protect it? They're in the witness protection program, and here, in the beginning of Parshas Pinchas, all of a sudden we are revealing their identity and we're naming names. Why the difference? So I call your attention to the Halacha Orachaim Hakadosh, and why is it so significant? Because today is the Yerit site of the Orachaim. have Chaim Ibn Atar, who was a leading Rav in Morocco, ultimate way, ultimately made his way to Eretz Yisrael and was buried there. The Orachaim Hakadosh of Chaim ben Atar. And it's appropriate to learn his Torah. The greatest testimony, the greatest testament to Atam al-Chacham, their Torah uh, outlives them. They achieve immortality through their Torah. And therefore, we study his Torah today. So on Perak Chaf Hei, Pasuk Yudal, chapter 25, verse 14, the Orachaim HaKadosh is bothered by this question. If Hashem wants to reveal their identity, He should have done so when when the episode took place, for the event itself. In last week's Pasha, where we first read about the event, it should have said their names. Ish that was the place to say their name. Ish, Zimri, And similarly, when we mentioned the seductress, the Midianite seductress, that was the place to say her name. And if the Torah wants to hide their identity, just like the story of the mikoshesh Eitzim. We read several weeks ago about the mikoshesh Eitzim, which is connected to our Pasha, because the Gemara tells us, it's a Gemara in Shabbos, those learning the Dafyam, recently came across it. Who is the Well We read recently, there was a Jew who went out and gathered wood on Shabbos, and Moshe Rabbeinu held him accountable, and he was given the death penalty, very severe, for having violated the laws of Shavash, the Makoshesh. The Torah never tells us who he is, but the Gemara does. Who does the Gemara tell us is the Makoshesh him? Spoiler alert right now. Who's the Makoshesh him? None other than Tzlafchad, Tzlafchad. How does the Gemara know it? Because in our Parsha, when the daughters of Tzlafchad say, our father died in the desert, they want to make clear he didn't die as part of the act of rebellion in Korach. He died for another reason altogether. And the Gemara sees his death in the shades him as he did Navera Lashma he took one for the team, he intentionally violated Shabbos and gave his life to do it in order to communicate to the entire nation and people the severity of the violation of Shabbos. That's why he did it, says the Gemara. In fact, the Gemara there has that conversation and wonders if the Torah didn't want to reveal the identity. Why did you, I believe, is it Rabbi Akiva who reveals the identity? And the Gemara challenges Rabbi Akiva, I think it's Rabbi Akiva, and says, if Hashem wanted to hide his identity, how dare you reveal it? What are you doing by revealing it? So anyway, the Orachaim says, is it like the case of the Mikoshesh? In the case of the Mikoshesh, the Torah never tells us who it is. Similarly here, it just says a Jewish man and a Midianite woman. So why in the next part should we tell us their names? What is going on, what is going on here? So the Rachaim tells us in the second paragraph... He says, an incredible principle of the Rebona of the Almighty, which we should follow and emulate. He says, Hashem does not want to denigrate. Hashem does not want to harm or hurt or injure even wicked people who deserve it. Even these wicked people who perpetrated an evil, who led to a plague, who desecrated Hashem's name so publicly, it was an affront. It was a direct challenge to Hashem to his holiness, to his dignity, even then Hashem does not intentionally share or promote or harm or injure even wicked, evil people. We sometimes think that when someone's done something wrong, then we have license to share their name or hurt them or publicize it as much as we want, as much as we can. We even turn it into a mitzvah to do so. And the Orachayim here is very instructive and is very inspiring. And it tells us that in last week's Pasha Hashem doesn't reveal their identity because even the names of Rishayim, Hashem doesn't want to harm. So why does he reveal it here? Oh, if the Rishayim HaKadosh is right, if Hashem wants to even protect the dignity, the honor, even of the wicked people by not promoting where they went wrong, and that's the reason in last week's Parsha, he conceals their identity. What happened to this week's Parsha? Why here does he share it or reveal it? So, the says, You know why? Because in last week's Parsha, it was about indicting them. Last week's Parsha was about acknowledging their mistake. There, Hashem protected their identity. But this week's Parsha is about rewarding Pinchas. This week's Parsha is about identifying and acknowledging Pinchas's greatness. So, here, now that we're talking about Pinchas's greatness, it would diminish Pinchas to simply keep them anonymous. Why? Because maybe Pinchas took two low lives, two nobodies, two homeless people, and that's who he killed. So you need to know that, no, the ones that Pinchas stood up with courage and conviction to confront were none other than an Asi Beis Av. This was the leader, the head of a tribe. This was the daughter of a Midianite king. These were people of great power and great distinction. Here, revealing their identity is... In fact, part of the way that we honor and acknowledge Pinchas, and that's why in the last week's parsha we conceal it, and in this week's parsha we reveal it, and that is the insight of the Halacha Orachayim HaKadosh. Slavchad. Torah Gozan, let's moving right along. Torah goes on, tells us the story of B'Neu Slavkad. I identified with Slavkad for a long time because I had five daughters. My first five children were girls. I felt like a modern-day Tzlafchad for a little while. Then I had a sixth daughter. Then I felt like Tzlafchad's got nothing on me. Who's Tzlafchad? What's five daughters? And then Baruch Hashem, Bli Ayin Hara. I had my, my seventh, which was a son. So the Torah here moves on and tells us we have the census. We're skipping over the census. And the story of Tzlafchad. Page 886. Article Stone Chumash, page 886. Perak Chaf Zion, chapter twenty chapter 27. Actually, let's go back one more comment, I'm sorry. Go back to Test twenty-six 9. Let's make one comment in the census. This is a fascinating comment. We know that a couple weeks ago we read the story of Korach, and Korach is one of the great villains of Jewish history. He's a great villain of our 40 years in the desert. Korach, Korach uh, started this uh, rebellion and challenged the authority of Moshe and of Aaron, and we know the ground opened up and swallowed up Korach and his followers. Dasan va'aviram and so on. Perak Chaf Vov Pasik Test, chapter twenty six, verse number nine. So here the Torah tells us in the context of the census. We've begun the census. Why is this a census? Because the door, the generation who were in the desert, were not destined to go into Israel. Part of their punishment of the terrible mistake of the spies was that they were all wiped out. They didn't go into the desert. They didn't go into Israel. The women all got to go into Israel. Why? Because the women did not make the same mistake. The women got to go into Israel. The women, their righteousness, um, they did not participate in the Chet They did not participate in either, the also in the, uh, in the uh, sin of the spies. They got to go in. But the generation of men were wiped out. This is a new generation. And therefore, a census needed to be taken. In the context of this sentence, census, the Pasek tells us, Posik tells verse 9 the following. Vatiftach. Sorry, verse ten and eleven. The ground opened up and swallowed Korach and his followers. Two hundred and fifty people. This was a miracle. In the context of a census, all of a sudden the Torah throws in this gratuitous fact. You should know the children of Korach, his own kindelach, his own ainiklah. They did not die. Korach, Dasan Valviram, Bnei Ruben, 250. The ground opened up, swallowed them up. They were gunners, but Bnei Korach Lo Mesu. The children of Korach did not die. Here again the Orachim has a comment. I share it because it's worthwhile to learn, but also it is his Yurite today. Again, Perchavav pasuk Yud Aleph. And the Orachhaim says, Zakan, Veloba Again, he has the same question. Why are we mentioning now that Korach's children didn't die? Where would have been the more appropriate place to mention it? Nothing in the Torah is coincidental or chance. Nothing's because the publisher decided there's more room or space to put it in here. because Baruch is the author. Kazh is the publisher. So where would have been the more natural place to put this fact that B'nai Korach Lomesu? Where should it have gone that the children of Korach didn't die? Where? You're all muted so you can't answer me and I'm just asking it over and over again. The answer I'll answer for you. The answer is, of course, in Parshas Korach. In the story of Korach, and the whole narrative of Korach is the logical place to put in korach that the children of Korach didn't die. Gam Kisham or the census of the Leviyam. Why didn't we put it in there? We just took another census here, so why don't we include the Levium had their own census in parallel B'nei Korach, the children of Korach, are among the Leviim. Why didn't we put the fact that B'nei Korach, the children of Korach, live in the sense of the Leviim? So two alternatives, two better places to have put this. It says the Orachayim, why here? Because this somehow tells us something Uh, positive about Korach, that even though Dasan Valviram got mixed into this whole episode, Korach did not pay it forward to his own children. Korach did not pass it on to them and therefore they continued to live. They continued to live. The uh, Kielas Yankif, the stipler, also addresses this question. Listen to this insight from the stipler. I love this insight. The great stipler, Gaon, is the father Zatzal of Rav Chaim Kanievsky Shlita in B'nai Brak today. The of the author of the Kielus Sankov says the following. He says, Dosan Why don't you say that Dosan who are held so accountable, Dosan who also go down as villains of Jewish history because they are accomplices and partners and they join the bandwagon of, of uh, rebelling against Moshe. Why don't we say they're Anusim? They were, we should let them off the hook. Why? Shchein they were neighbors with Korach. So you have a bad neighbor, and the neighbor can say, come on, come over for a drink, everybody's doing it. Try a smoke of this, everybody's doing it. Listen to this Lashon Hara, everybody's listening to it. Or the modern day application would be, the neighbor says, come over for lunch on Shabbos with no mask and sit two feet away from me. Everybody's doing it. So what would you say about the neighbor? Eh, let's, let's be a little flexible. Let's be a little sympathetic. Because they had a bad neighbor, an evil neighbor was able to uh, compel them, persuade them. So if I were the, de- the lawyer, if I were defending Dasan Vaaviram, Aviram, I'd come before the Judge the Almighty and I'd say, look, Dasan Va Aviram didn't lead this rebellion. It wasn't their initiative. Dasan and Aviram, they're victims of Korach. Korach was this great orator, this great spokesperson, this charismatic leader, and let them off the hook. So therefore, that's why the Kielus says, that's why it tells us, B'nei Korach l'mesu. Why? Because if B'nei Korach could have the spiritual fortitude, if the B'nei Korach could know that their father was doing what was wrong and not participate and partner in his rebellion, then Kol all the more so a neighbor needs to know that just because your neighbor is doing the wrong thing, that doesn't let you off the hook. The Medrash tells us, B'nei Korach asu the children of Korach did shuva. B'nei Korach limdu Torah, where? B'nei Brach. Maybe that's why the stipler gave this insight. Gemara tells us, B'nei Banav Shalhaman, sorry, limdu Torah b'b'nei Brach. So the children of Korach, they did shuvah. They didn't go down, literally down. Get it? Get the pun? They didn't go down with Korach? That was good. They didn't go down with Korach. They didn't go down with Korach. Why? Because they had the moral compass. They had the spiritual fortitude to be able to see that what their father was doing was wrong and to withstand his his persuasiveness and his charisma, and that's the stipler tells us the contrast here. Dasam va'aviram korea eda shehitu amosh v'arom bados korach v'tiftachar. It says pia. It swallowed dasam va'aviram ubne korach lamesu. Before you're going to jump in, the defense attorney, and before you're going to say, no, 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 Dasan Vaviram, judge, let them off the hook. It's not their fault. They live next door to Korach. There was nothing they can do. Before you're going to jump in in the pasuk and say, come to the defense of Dasan Vaviram, you need to know, korach lo that if the children of Korach could do it, so could you. We, who are exposed to all kinds of ideas and ideals on the internet and off of it, in the media and social media, among our neighbors, need to know that it's not an excuse It's not a justification to say, what could I do? This was my neighbor. I was, got caught up in it. If B'nai Korach, Lomesu, if the children of Korach could know, if children could know right from wrong, then we're capable of knowing right from wrong as well. And we're held accountable to stand up and to do it. Okay, now we move over to B'nai Tzlafchad, which is where we were heading. After the census, B'nai Korach, Lomesu, we have the story of the children, the daughters of Tzlafchad. The daughters of Tzlafchad. Page 886 in the art scroll, Stone Chumash. The five daughters of Slavchad step up, and they challenge Moshe Rabbeinu and they say, what's the deal? We're only sisters, we have no brother. Are we going to lose our land? Are we going to lose our land? This doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem justified. It doesn't feel fair. What's going on over here? Benos Oh, Benos Slavchad, stand up. Rashi here says the story of Benos Slavchad. What does Rashi say? It says we're going all the way back. If you thought we got to learn Pinchas' Shirakh resume, his lineage at the beginning of the parsha, now the daughters of Slavchad, their resume goes all the way back. Their alta zeda was none other than Yosef Atzadik. So they wanted to make sure that whatever boys they were going to marry, they would know they were ben cheif, ben Slavchad, ben cheifer, ben Gilad, ben Machir, ben Menasha, ben Yosef, uah. That's a long resume. They stand before Moshe and they, and they challenge him. So Rashi says, It says they were the children of, going all the way back, Ben Menashe. The children of Menashe, according to the family of Manasha Ben Yosef. Does that make sense to you? Why is that here? That's what Rashi says. So El Lomalcha Yosef Khibave Saareth, Shneber V Halisim is at Mosai, Ubinosov, Yosef loved the land. Yosef said, don't bury me, Yitzrayim, take me back to Israel. He loved the land. Yosef was a great religious Zionist, a great lover of Tzion. Yosef, Zion hello Tishali, Yosef loved the land. And just like Yosef loved the land, he ingrained that within his progeny, within his family. And his descendants, the daughters of Tzlovchad, inherited this quality. And they too loved the land. And that's why they said, Tenu lanu achuzah. That's why they confronted Moshe and said, it ain't fair to us. It's not fair. Where's our cut of the land? We want to hold on to our father's property. Ask the Chesam Sefer. Ramosha Sofer of Pressburg. asked the A great question. Did it ever occur to any of you? Ask the the following great question. How do you know the daughters of Tzlovchad loved the land of Israel? Maybe what they loved was land. What's to say that if Tzlovchad was going to have property in Boca Raton, if Tzlovchad was going to have property in the five towns of Tinek, in L.A., in South Africa, in South America, in Paris or London, that they also wouldn't have said, it's not fair to us, we deserve to inherit. Weren't the daughters of Slavka challenging the laws of Yerusha of inheritance? This was no Zionist statement. They weren't saying, we love the land. We too need to be pioneers of settling the land. It's not fair to us, we won't get the land. This wasn't some Zionist statement. This was a, this was a statement of inheritance. This was a challenge to the laws of Yerusha. So how does Rashi know? Lemish bechos Menashe ben Yosef, just like Yosef was chive v'sa'aretz, just like Yosef were chov v'etzio and he loved the land chive v'sa'aretz. So too benosav chive v'us'a'aretz. Where do you see that from? Where do you see that from? It's a great question of the Chasam Sofer. You agree? Great question. Great question. he Says the Chasam Sofer the following. He says benoslav chade. Hello, how you mishevet Menashe? Lemish bechos Machir v'Gilad not those chalcom be'evar ayardin. The family Machir and Gilad took the portion of Menashe. Remember, Manasseh ultimately gets divided in two. Reuven Gad and Chatsi Manasseh inherit land where? East of the Yardin. East of the Yardin. Says the Sam Sofer, what Benos Slavchad were worried about was, what if we're with the half of Manasseh that are getting the land east of the Jordan? We don't want some expanded version of Israel. We want Israel proper. We want to be within the boundaries and borders. We don't want to be east of the Yardin. We want to be in Israel property. So this is the source that they love the land. They weren't worried about getting their portion. They weren't worried about their portfolio, their inheritance. They weren't worried about what their father would leave them. What were they worried about? Don't give us the part east of the Jordan. We don't want to be Averly Ardain the extended Israel. We want to be an Israel property properly. Proper. And that's how Rashi knew that Chive Vestion, that's how Rashi knew that what drove this challenge of Beno Slavchad was in fact was in fact their love of Israel, their love of the land of Israel should be at the forefront of all of our minds. I saw that uh, uh, Israel came out and they said, what do they say over the next uh, five years? They expect a quarter of a million people are going to make Aliyah. I think this summer there were supposed to be the most people ever making Aliyah and most people in a long time. If only they could figure out who would fly them there or how they can get there, which I know is a great challenge. All of us, we're beginning the three weeks and we're experiencing and, and reeling from the loss of Beis HaMekdash of Golis should be thinking not if, but when it's time for us to go, that we too should be the offspring and the disciples of the daughters of, of Tzlovchad Going all the way back to Menasheh and to Yosef to be Bihabi v'sa'ares to love the land. Perikhav Zayin pasuk hey, still in the middle of this story. But I crave Moshe's mishpatan lifnei Hashem. So the doors of Tovchad challenge Moshe, and how does Moshe react? He says that's a pretty good question. It's a good. It's a bam kasha in yeshiva. You'd call that a bam kasha. It's a bam kasha. It's a great question. What does he do? He advances their question to God. via Moshe as Mishpatan, he takes their question and he brings it to Hashem Almighty. Ask the what's going on? When you go, if you go all the way back, I can't find this safer. The Chiddush Harim here is. When you go all the way back to the last time this happened, because this isn't the first time and it's not the last time that this happened, it's happened several times. That Moshe Rabbeinu encounters a question he doesn't know the answer to. Rabbi Yehuda Cooperman, the founder of Michlala, wrote a whole safer, I think, about this. Each time that Moshe didn't know the answer and how he reacted. So the, so the Chiddush Rabbi Yitzchak Meir of Ger, the Ger Rebbe, wonders that if you go back to the last time this happened, which was Pesach Sheni, Lama Nigara, Jews stood up and they said, it's not fair to us. We were deprived of being able to participate in the Korban because we were impure. It's not fair to us. The Torah there says, Amdu ve'eshma, Ma'itzav v'ashem lachem. Moshe says, stand up and ask and let God respond. He took himself out of that equation. There in the case of Pesach, he took himself out. And here, I'm sorry, there he said, Amdu let's stand up together and ask God what he has to say. So over here, He takes himself out altogether, but I crave Moshe as mishpatan l'fnei Hashem. He deposits it before. He deposits it before God. So why here does he say God will answer you? And in the case of Pesach Sheni, he says, "No, let's learn this together. Let's ask God together. Let's find out together." When Moshe is stumbled, when Moshe doesn't know, why does sometimes he say, let's learn this together, and sometimes he says, I'll put this before God and God will answer you as if he's not part of it. So says the Chidush Arim, because you have to look at what the claim of B'nus Khad. the claim of the daughters of Tavchad was, Avinu meis ba-midbar, our father died in the desert. He wasn't among those who rebelled against you with the story of Korach. So therefore, Moshe was worried, how can I be a judge to give them an answer? How can I, in an unbiased way, judge the situation? I just became biased. How was he biased? because they testified about their father Tslavchad, he was on your side. And all Moshe needed to hear was, he's on my side, that was enough to constitute a bias. That was enough to be a bribe. That was enough for Moshe to feel disqualified to adjudicate their question, to be able to come back with an answer. You see just how sensitive it is, how easy it is for us to become biased in a certain direction, and not to be able to be objective in the conclusion about that question, so much so that, Moshe recuses himself from answering only because they themselves testified that that our father was not part of the rebellion. We gave a sh- uh, three or four shiurim uh, recently about bribery in uh, in Jewish law. We see it all the time. You bribe to get your grandson into the cheder. You bribe, we had the episode of the people recently who uh, the college, uh, got their kids into the college, academic, athletic programs, and so on and so forth. Uh, the bribery in Allah, how sensitive it is and how careful we have to we have to be. Okay. Okay. Um, we only have a few minutes left. I'm deciding where to go. Okay. Turn the page. Page 888. The next section is Moshe asks for a successor. This really is worth our studying at length. We don't have the time for now, but this is a really worthwhile passage to be studying at length. Succession planning in Judaism. What do you look for in a succession? How do you do succession planning? The importance of succession planning is what this is all about. Moshe spoke to Hashem, he initiates the conversation of his own succession with Hashem. Moshe is a level 5 leader. Jim Collins, good to great, Moshe is a level 5 leader, that the cause is greater than himself. And therefore, how do you know when the cause is greater than yourself? When you are more concerned with its continuity than you are with your legacy, and you're looking to appoint that successor. So, for Moshe Rabbeinu, the cause of Kla Yisrael is greater than his own legacy, and so he comes to Hashem and he says, "May Hashem, who is the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the assembly. Find somebody who's going to lead over everybody." And what are the qualities? What are the qualifications that he is that he's looking for? So the pasuk tells us. Here are the qualities. Here's the criteria. If you're putting it out there, here's the job description to lead Kla Yisrael. He has to walk out before them and come in before them, take them out and bring them in, and never let them be like a flock who's lacking a shepherd. That's what I'm looking for, says Moshe. So, what is this language? Along the list of criteria of qualifications, Appoint a man who will go out before them and come in before them, who shall take them out and bring them in. What does it mean, Asher Who will go out before them. So it's a beautiful sefer. It's a beautiful sefer. And in here he says the following about this clause. The Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, Will this leader be Moser Nefesh for every member of Klal Yisrael? To be a Mechanech, To be a parent, to be an educator, to be a rabbi, to be a leader is you have to be willing to be Moser Nefesh for the people. You have to be willing to be Moser Nefesh for the people. The way I put it is the following. This is what I look for in the people on our team, and this is what I try to demand of myself and those around me. Is this your calling or is this a career? Is it a profession or is it a calling? Do you say I won't do it if I'm not paid or I put in many many hours I'm not doing any more? Do you go above and beyond? Are you satisfied with the minimal or do you seek the maximum? Is it a career or is it a calling? What is it? What is it? And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was telling Hashem, I need you to help me find somebody that's not their career. They're not doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it because it's their calling. They're willing to be most their nefesh. They're willing to compromise and risk and put themselves on the line. They're willing to do that for the Jewish people. It's what it's really, it is what it's really all about. The HaMehod Chavzai Perik and Continuing, Hashem says, no problem. I got your man. Succession done. You know who your man is? Take your man, your Joshua, your boy, Joshua, the one who always stays after and cleans up the classroom, the one who drinks from your feet, the one who's thirsty for everything you have to say. He's your man, Joshua. And you're going to put your hands over him. You're going to put your majesty on him so that everybody will listen to him. What does that mean? You're going to put your Majesty on him, so everybody will listen to him. We're running out of time, but bear with me a couple more minutes because it is it is worth it. You're going to put your Majesty on him. So Rav Chaim V'lajner, the great Rav Chaim V'lajner says the following. Why does this Kingdom have to be there? What does the pasuk specifically say? He says, "Take Yeshua ben Nun, Ish Asha Ruach bo. He's got a lot of ruach. You know, in camp we've got ruach. Yes, we do. We've got ruach. How about you? Yeshua would win color war every year. He won the ruach contest. He is Asher ruach bo. We have to define what that means. If we weren't out of time, I'd spend some time on this. Ish Asher ruach bo. What does it mean? Yeshua is. A, he's got ruach. Yes, he does. He's got ruach. How about you? So, where are you supposed to put him in front of Elazar? And give him a command. And take your majesty, to your glory, and put it on on him. Says Rashi, Zok Rashi, quoting the Gemara Baba Basra in Hei, Velo Kolhodcha. Don't give him all, Your Majesty, save some, but put Your Majesty on him. Zekainim Shabaosa ador Amru, Pene Moshe, Kepene Chama, Pene Yoshua, Oylo Busha, Oylo Laos, Klima. So Rashi quotes the Gemara Chazal that the rabbis, the elders of that generation, said they watched this transition, they watched this succession, and they said, What? The face of Moshe is like the face of the sun, and the face of Yahushua is like the face of the moon. Why is it specifically Zkenim who observe this? Why is it Zkenim who note this? So Reh Chaim the great uh, primary student of the Vilna Gon, Reh says, you know why it's Davkan, Zkenim, the older people? For the following reason. Because the younger people thought that, you know what, Moshe is not really greater than Yoshua Moshe is at the end of his career. Yoshua is at the beginning of his career. Give Yoshua all those years, he'll end up as great as Moshe. You can't compare and contrast, it's not apples to apples. Moshe's at the end of his career, is at the beginning of his career. So who was the only one who knew Moshe at the beginning of his career? Who can say no? Even at the beginning of his career, Moshe was categorically different and greater than Yoshua? That was the Zakanim. The Canaan had the perspective of history of time. They know Moshe, they knew Moshe in his youth. And therefore, they're able to accurately compare and contrast and to testify that the face of Moshe is like the face of the sun and the face of Yeshua is like the face of the moon. What does that mean? What is this comparison of the face of the sun, the face of the moon? What does that mean? So, So Rodruk explains, many explain this way, that what it means is the following. The sun is a primary source of light. The sun is a source of light. The sun is not greater than the moon because of its size. It's not that the comparison of greatness of the sun versus the moon is because of size it's not the the quantity it's the quality the sun is a originator it is a source of light and the moon is only a reflector of light the moon mirrors or reflects the light and the sun is the source of light and that's what it means that yahushua of course was a great disciple but he reflected back everything he learned from his teacher moshe introduced new things And Yeshua reflected back the things that he had seen from his teacher. And Rabbi Salavetchik added, "That's what we say at a bris. We wish this child Right now he's a katan. He's simply reflecting his parents. May he be an originator of light himself. And you see that from the sun and the moon. The sun is called the moorah and the moon is called the moor hakatan. It's a lot more to say about all this, but I want to end with one more thought because it connects to." Our fast day on Thursday. So bear with me for one more moment and I thank you for those who are still with us. The uh, parsha has in it at the end the story of the Korban Tamid. It's a kevas it's a ha You offer one lamb in the morning, one in the afternoon. This is the story of the Korban Tamid, the daily sacrifice that was offered each and every day, every single day in the HaMikdash. Until, when? Until it stopped. Until it was put to a stop. The Babylonians, when they laid, laid siege and we ran out of animals, the, the uh, Korban Tamid was ended. And that happened on Shavuos Rav One of the five reasons we're given why we fast on the 17th of Tammuz, why we'll fast this Thursday, is it was the end of the Korban Tamid. Why do we mourn the end of a Korban Tamid? What's so important about a Korban Tamid that we're crying for its loss? Because something that we took as part of our pattern, as part of our habit, as part of our ritual, namely the daily sacrifice was put to an end. When something, you know, one of the challenges of this pandemic, how many people who had certain habits, positive habits and lifestyles, which the pandemic deprived us of and and put to an abrupt halt and stop, and it's devastating, it's painful. We offered that Korban every morning, every night, weekday, Shabbos, Yom Kippur, it didn't matter. Cal Ripken Jr. record, we did it every single day, day in and day out, and the Babylonians laid siege, and we were no longer able to do it, and that was devastating, and it's one of the reasons we fast. But it's much more significant than that. We know that in Yaakov quotes a medrash, a medrash nobody's a found, but a medrash that says that the Jew, the rabbis got together to debate what is the most significant motto, what is the bumper sticker, what is the great statement of the Jewish people. And one of them proposed, I would give this to you dramatically, but we're out of time, one of them proposed it is, haftorah kamocha, what is the motto of the bumper sticker of the Jewish people? Love your neighbor as yourself. And the other said, no, it's Shema Yisrael Hashem Lekinu Hashem It is a statement of Jewish unity. And the third stood up and said, no, it's Boker, The morning and the. Air. What are you talking about? That's the most important. They voted. Of course, undoubtedly, this con- conference was at the Homewood Hotel. And they voted. What is the motto of the bumper sticker? Maybe the Concord. What is the motto or bumper sticker of the Jewish people? And they voted it is, the Korban That's the motto, that's the bumper sticker. And the answer is yes. Because if we don't have consistency and constancy, if we are not reliable and dependable, if we're not willing to do a day in and day out, we have nothing. Judaism is not a casual relationship. It's not something we do when we feel like it. It's something that is part of our very identity, it's part of our core, it's with us whenever and wherever we go, on vacation or at home. It's like a status of marriage. You're not married while you're at home, but if you're on vacation or a business trip, you're single. Marriage is part of your core, who you are, and it informs and inspires everything you do and everywhere you go. And that is the consistency that Torah and mitzvahs demand, the daily grind every morning and every afternoon. And that was what was denied from us, and that's why we fast on Thursday. When we think about it, this Thursday, Shivasar Asr the loss of that korban tamid, the loss of that capacity for consistency. So the Imre Chaim, and we end with this. You knew I wasn't going to get out without an Imre Chaim. The Hele he says the following. He says, It's a kevas. The word Keves means a lamb, a sheep. But it can also mean Miloshen Kovish. Where do we see that? Who is a Gibor? Who is a mighty person, a warrior? Every morning and every evening you have to conquer your yitzhara. Every morning and every evening. In the morning before you head out to work and you're going to confront all the yitzhara to cheat, to be dishonest, the yitzhara to interact inappropriately with others, the yitzhara to gossip at the water cooler. So before you go out in the moch in the morning. It's a kevasah taseba boker because you either in the morning before you head out for the day. And uh Maso Masno Beamuna Lolosh Mo Novasheker and now when you come home and you're about to go back into your house and you're going to lose your cool with your wife or with your children or your spouse, you're going to, you're going to act inappropriately or watch the wrong things. When you come home from work and you're coming back into your house, a second time on the way in. A beautiful interpretation the lamb, the sheep, is kovesh as yitzro, twice a day, tomid, consistently, regularly, every morning and every evening. We have to be kovish, that yetzer. we should all be Zocha to be able to achieve it, to accomplish it, to fulfill it. Again, I want to thank the Cats family for sponsoring our series for this year. Others can sponsor each individual shear. Please be in touch with our shul, and you can sponsor any individual shear. Tonight I'm starting a new series at 9 p.m. called Be Your Best Self Yet. And uh, tomorrow morning we have 10 Minutes of Meaning, Misal Sharam, Living with Emuna. Tomorrow night we have, what do we have behind the bima? All of this available on our YouTube channel, YouTube slash Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Please subscribe to the channel there. Wishing everyone a happy, healthy, and holy rest of your day.